Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report for week commencing 16th of November 2020. Let's start with feed wheat. Uh, The market has remained buoyant. Prices are still very good. We would pay X Farm for feed wheat in November 182 and we would add £1 per month to that price if you sold it for any later month. Uh, is the carry is back in the market, which is great. And spot demand for wheat is a little bit lacklustre in the sense that merchants have got lots of grain on their books, probably below market value, and they're going to be very much focusing on moving that, plus all of the futures that's floating around in the system as well. Uh, premiums for soft and hard wheats have kind of disappeared pre-Christmas because the miller has done a very, very good job of buying. He's He knew that replacing soft wheat was going to be tough and he sat out there with some very good aggressive premiums and, and has been rewarded by getting lots and lots of cover for the year. So I think the miller has done a very good job this year. Right now, there is the odd small premium, but I'm reluctant to trade grain from, uh, you know, East Norfolk to go to a mill in the Midlands where, you know, for a £5 premium, you, you're losing some of that three pounds of it in extra haulage and then you're down to the whim of the mills and their intake and possibly a claim or rejection you increase the chances by having more specs to meet so if it's a good 10 pound premium it's worth it if it's much lower than that i personally don't like playing that game as you all know but up to christmas i think the millers have got enough anyway post christmas there should be some more premiums creeping back in or the premium should creep up a little bit uh, feed barley sticking statically to 140x farm kind of deviated from that a little bit but largely and the pound has had a, a period of going up and down this week who knows what happens next you know the minute you start seeing the likelihood of a deal old boris and his brexit pals have really got themselves in a very strong position as we all know and they're going to show those europeans or even though they've possibly lost their biggest supporter in the states and their sort of threat deal will be doing it with them not you has gone out the window a bit so they're they're concerned conceding a bit on fisheries as expected and um, whatever deal we come up with is going to be better than not having a deal at all I think the reality is we will have a deal because it will be just too much of a mess and and even the staunch vocal Brexiteers in the government are having to admit to that as for the rest of you no doubt you can blame COVID anyway weaker pound following the kind of reshuffles and the infighting in 10 Downing Street where Boris Johnson's missus seems to be pulling the shots uh, which is vaguely reassuring or is it We have um, therefore seen currency take the price of barley down and it's recovered a bit. And yeah, I think 140 is a good fair price for feed barley. I don't see it going up from there in the short term. There's plenty of barley around and plenty of barley that failed as malting. Malting barley is quite flat right now um, obviously the most recent lockdown is going to impact consumption i'm sure some of you are doing your best on that one i mean even our reports have not had uh, where we do beer tasting because of it increases uh, the, the covid issues the interview with jeremy that i've got this week jeremy savage has got uh, no beer involved in it whatsoever we were sitting a long way apart with the leads you know far end of the room sort of thing which is doing the correct thing 
So malting barley has issues and, yeah, it's not going to be a healthy market towards the end of the year. The good news for malting barley, taking a longer term view, is um, the recent weather window of wheat planting has meant there will be less spring barley. There is a smaller crop of winter malting barley for next year. And I think we will go into next year with no carryout of stock because there's no point. There's a big drop in value. Therefore, I think it could be a bit tight next season. I really hope so because our poor old malting barley growers need a bit of a reward. Moving on to peas and beans we haven't mentioned for ages. We, we've got nothing going on with that. Well, our book is clear and we've kind of traded it all. So I, I don't actually know what the price of that is. So you can you can put this on and you can uh, say, oh, blimey, Grain Trader doesn't know his prices. But I haven't got a clue. I have not been in touch with the beans or pea prices. I will find out for next week. And Royalty Rape has been exciting. It's surpassed our target price. The vaccine discovery, there was a very big surge in oil prices, a big, like, we're all going to be well again soon type mood. We went up to 3.55, which is £5 over our target. I think a lot of that is, there's, there's obviously a currency involvement in that as well. I think possibly the market is going to ease back down again. So I think we're, we're dancing in an area where you should be trading. That is our view. It's in the region of 3.50, 3.55 at the moment. It's had a great week it's had a great response to the vaccine discovery knee jerk didn't have the same impact on other commodities not in the uk anyway if anything with the usda report out last week wheat prices have actually come off around the rest of the world but yeah i think rape is time to trade with that i hope you have a i don't know what do you want weather wise i guess you still want it to be dry is it ever going to be dry enough to get the rest of the spuds out the ground because it keeps raining and Boy, there's some messes out there. Uh, and the sugar beet to follow after that. It doesn't feel as bad as last year, I will say. And I think people have cracked on quicker and not been prepared to assume the weather's going to dry up for them. Uh, so there is more acreage in the ground. But this last week, there has been some mud on the road, we'll say. And there's been some big ruts in the fields. And there's a bit of a mess out in some of those fields. They are not going to yield four tons an acre with what they're trying to grow in. Anyway, with that, have a great week. And um, yep, see you next week. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Dewing Grain app will keep you updated with real-time industry news, data analysis and insights into the market, giving you all the information you need to make informed trading decisions. A commodity selling feature enables you to source prices and receive direct offer notifications informing you on what Dewing Grain are looking to buy and at what price. Search Dewing Grain on the App Store or Google Play to download and with all of these features in your pocket, you'll have more time to sit back and listen to our podcast. To set up a trading account with us, call 01263 731 or email info at uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. This morning, I have got with me someone from the Legend series. So, Legend, Jeremy Savage, good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Very kindly, we're doing our proper lockdown recording type thing. So, we're sitting 14 and a half metres apart. I can just see, and hopefully you can hear me as well. Um, so, what I'd like to do, Jeremy, if it's okay with you, is tap into your vast experience about the grain trade. Fine. By vast experience, I mean large number of years. Yeah, you're exaggerating, but never mind. <laughs> and then, we're going to do a separate podcast for the, another week about the corn exchanges. Yep. So if yep. we slip into corn exchange talk, we'll try and save some of those stories for later. Yep. But, okay, fine. So let's start with what year did you join the grain trade and what brought you into it? 
1960-61, as far as I remember. It's a long time ago, so the memory's pretty foggy. 59 years, yeah. Yeah. And yes, I'm coming up to 60 years in the trade, yes. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'd done 40 and was bragging about it, so yes. 60s. Well, I worked at that time for a farmer, and I was sort of his assistant farm manager and part of his grain trade, and it's George Tickner, who prior to that used to be a Fison's technical representative, and I think that's how I came across him. Is that which county was that? Uh, that was in at Hellions Bumpstead, actually just in Essex near Haverhill. And um, he did a certain amount of merchanting as well as having a farm to run. And I took part in both activities. OK, so you're a farmer merchant. Uh, well, he sort of inherited the interest in the farm. He wasn't really a farmer bred. So he had a fairly strong position in the water beach area out in the Fens. And those are the days when combine harvesters, a lot of them were sack loading Yep. And they were sort of dumped in the field, catch weights, and you had a lorry with a Mackiness loader that went round and picked them up, and some poor blighter had to load them. <laughs> and um, well, yes. On his own, single man lifting sacks. Yes, well, the heaviest I ever carried was 23 and a half stone. Right. And that did make the knees buckle a bit. <laughs> I remember stacking stacks, and there were two people picking them up and putting them onto the heaps, but I, yeah, yeah. picking one up on your own was too much of a man's test for me. Oh, well, yes, you had one of those sack lifter things, which would cut oh, yeah. your toes off if you were not yeah. careful. Yeah, yeah I remember but, them um, too. Yep. <clears throat> basically, you had to either hoss them up, which was two men. Yeah. Holding hands, hands together, and, yeah. uh, or you put it high on your back and hoped you could get it up two sacks. Yeah, you put it three high, I, or even go up a small stout ladder, which was flaming hard work with yeah. a sack on your shoulders. But uh, that was my first merchanting experience. Okay, and were you from that region, or where? where yes, you? my father farmed near Saffron Walden, mm-hmm. and this was the other side of Saffron Walden, between Saffron Walden and Haverhill, mm-hmm. at uh, a delightful village called Hellions Bumpstead. So, how did it evolve from there? What happened next? Well, then I joined Fison's. I went and worked for Fison's in Bristol, so I've got a few tales about the West Country. Mm-hmm. They're different down there, but I <laughs> travelled down to um, places like the Ivy Bush Royal at Carmarthen and down to Barnstable. And so uh, Fison's was selling fertilisers? Fertiliser, yes. They weren't merchants, but it was mainly fertiliser and basic slag, which was a renowned product in those days. Right. Um, Albert basic slag, which was a sort of phosphate fertiliser. Okay. A minimalist fertiliser, and uh, a lot of farmers down there didn't believe in too much technical knowledge and too much fertiliser. And yes, I was um, visiting various places. I remember going on a farm down there. Uh, two things, actually. One, I walked on a farm and he took one look at me and saw me about six foot one or six foot two and weighed about 11 stone and said, do you ride, boy? I've got just the pointer pointer for you. <laughs> and I looked at the fences, which were large banks, mm-hmm. and decided there was no way I was going to ride anything over those <laughs> and uh, another visit to a Devonshire farmer up a long drive and he said would I like a drink and he gave me a half pint of his homemade still cider yeah, that'd be the end of that then for the rest of the day and um, <laughs> fortunately the banks were smooth so I could bounce off them on the way from the yeah. farm because it's very difficult to steer a straight road from there no that homemade still it's cider strong, is yes. yeah no mercy Yes. So after Fison's, how did you get from fertiliser? Fison's, uh, well, then I wanted to come back to East Anglia. Well, Fison's actually made me redundant. That was because nobody got permission to employ me uh, in the Avison Wormold era, and they didn't like the fact that I wore bow ties and colourful socks. That was the excuse you weren't to get allowed to employ you, so what does that mean? Apparently, the boss at Bristol had not had permission from head office to employ me. 
Oh, okay. And so word got back about your bow ties, and they went... Yeah, and um, the excuse <laughs> to get rid of me was the fact they didn't like my bow ties and colourful socks. Oh, that would really rub in this day and age, wouldn't it? You'd be <laughs> yes. able to claim thousands you, for that. You can't imagine anybody saying you're not dressed correctly. Don't you oppress my right to wear colourful socks? Yeah. yeah. But um, <laughs> at Fison's Bristol, I used to act as a telephone advisor on chemicals, and you had some very strange um, calls with people whose West Country accents were fairly difficult for this East Anglian. <laughs> Like, well, have you got that smear snake bite? And I thought, what the bloody hell's that? And it turned out that this was a weed, Equisita marvensis, I now know it, and uh, it was invasive in the wetter lands then. And so that's what he was looking for, something to secure that. But, uh-huh, right. you know, there was some fairly primitive farming in the West Country. Um, I visited a farm on the Mendips to advise on why his ryegrass crop was not up to scratch. Right. Looked very thin, and I said, "Well, what's the problem?" He said, "Well, I've only had one cut off, and it should have had two. And he said, "But didn't want to graze it, so I'd only put half a seed raid on." <laughs> and then I understood why he hadn't yeah. got a crop. Yeah, well, there's some logic in his mind, but I guess. You, you, this was not unusual to meet farmers of that ilk. But I travelled over the whole of the West Country, including South Wales. So, how many years did you do do that for? A couple, I think. Travelled as far as Pembroke. Um, I remember going onto the station platform at Pembroke Dock, and the station master was also the Fison's agent for that part of Wales. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me as I went knocked on his station master's door. He said, "Fertilizer or railway?" So he changed his cap. <laughs> so with your, you know, your bow ties and your socks, and there's unless you change your socks, you're out, mate. What did you do next? When I left Fison's, I joined Paul's mm-hmm. and went through a training session at Paul's Malt. The boss man was Mr. R.O. Prentice and James Aldous, who finished up farming at Chedderston and whose son I'm still friendly with, who's the MP for that area. He was the sales manager and us trainees were mainly taught. The week's sessions were mainly about the history of the Paul family and uh, various personalities in the Paul family. Where were you based? In Ipswich at that, for that. Okay, but, so you moved from the West Country to, you came to live somewhere near Ipswich? Or? Well, yes, I under-trained Ipswich for, I don't know, well, it was two or three months probably. And then I went to join Norman Claxton at East Harling. And who did Norman Claxton work for? Well, that was, Coleman Ware was a subsidiary of Paul's Malt. Right. And Norman was the manager. Yes. And so working with Norman, we're going to come on to stories about Norman when we do them up. I mean, Norman was a well-known, later on, he Mm. became well-known as the buyer for Chris Malt. Yeah, or Evan G. Smith's. Yes, but Norman was at that time manager for Paul's of the Coleman Ware subsidiary based at East Harling or Harling Road Station. Right, there's a railway crossing there and obviously that's where the silo was. Was there maltings there or was there... Well, no, there was no maltings there but there was a grain store and an office just on the East Harling side of the crossing and the little fellow trading malting barley there was a fellow called Dickie Bird who used to work for Siemens before that. This would have been about, what, 1917? Yes, 70-something, yes. Hmm. When did East Harling close then? Were you there when that closed? No, I wasn't. Yes, it went on a bit. Terry Cracknell worked there for a while, I believe, mm-hmm. after Norman left, but it closed soon after Norman left. Let's stick with you. When did you leave East Island? Where did you go next after working with Norman? He would have uh, trained you in the in the ways of the yeah, malting yes, barley world. I, I, I worked for Norman for I don't know, a couple of years, probably, and then I went and worked at um, Ursham mm-hmm. with Tony Carr, which was then Vitovas. 
Right. T- Tony Carr famously was part of the Brooks Hassler yes. crew, and yes. which turned into Allied Grain. Yeah. Well, uh, at that time, it yeah. was Vitovis, and, you know, that was a separate entity. I mean, Vitovis had started out as flour millers and become merchants. The flour milling operation, which used to be at Erlingham Mill and Ersham Mill, had closed as flour mills mm-hmm. and purely become food compounders and uh, merchants. So they were an offshoot of Hovis right. originally, so that's hence the name Vitovis. Yes, yeah, so at that point you were doing what? Buying malting power? I, I was assistant manager of the branch, but, well, I was a rep to start with, and my first job was debt collecting, which was okay. a, a not a very cosy job. Mm. And I can remember taking £10 on a bad debt from somebody at Great Ellingham and going to see a well-known lady who bred chickens and sold day-old chickens and accepting the housekeeping money to keep the food coming for the chickens because she hadn't got anything else to offer me. I ended up quite friendly with her. She was a lovely person, actually. So from there onwards, with Tony Carr, was Colin Lond and yes. Richard Butler there at that time? Um, no, they, they came along later. I mean, Colin Lond at that time was working for uh, Savills of Mellis, Okay. And Richard Butler came in when they went to Dis. This was when I was at Ersham Vitovis. And it was when Vitovis sort of merged and became Allied Grain was after I'd left. Well, I joined the trade in 1978. Yeah. So we must be heading towards that time. I remember you initially at Waring and Savage. Yes. That was because you were at I started on my own. So what year did you do that? With John Waring. Now, I... I'm not very good at remembering the date, but it's probably 75, 76, something like that. And I started with an office in Harleston. John Waring was a strange character, um, quite enthralling and very demanding in some ways. But it wasn't until some time after I joined him that I learned that there were different ways of making a profit, not just the profit on the margin on what you'd actually traded, but he found improved methods. Okay. And I think... That, Should we leave that one alone or not? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I've met a few of those in my time as well, and it's kind of like, oh, how does, this, how does the trade get a bad name? And Yes, and these, yes, these we learned how things got a difficult name. Yes. Yeah. Down here, it isn't done like that, is it? Yeah. So... I mean, I can remember your blue bags. I remember buying grain yeah. at Algetti's as a young lad, or the, t- yeah, the team uh, used to, uh, for the export they did out of Yarmouth. And I yeah. remember your blue bags. And I said, my job was to run them over to the lab, bring them back, yeah, and, and yeah. then phone up and say they've been approved or not from the, you know, from yes, the bids I mean, at the market. Uh, a lot of people had white bags, but we chose blue, I think, yeah. because it was distinctive and I showed the barley it. up well. Yeah, there's a thing. Might not be known as bags anymore, do they? But, no, they yeah. don't. I mean... These I've were the little diddy little kind of envelope to mark. Yeah. yeah, so every merchant's bag, the leather bag was taken and had yeah. enough to get a good handful and a yeah, half that's right. in everybody so they can have a, an idea of the you would put the details like. on. Mm. Um, some and your special code. Some merchants had a code. Um, Did you have a code? would say that they'd paid 110 shillings a quarter for it. Yeah. We'd have to explain that. Um, yeah. Because... Uh, well, let's, let's do that. I mean, what was your code? I didn't have a code. I, I, ah, you I knew what your boundaries were. I was used to people having a code. Well, we, Dalgetty, I'll, I'll let the secret out of the bag. Now, codes don't exist. The, the Dalgetty Rackheath code was Evan Bishop. Oh, yeah. So the bishop, oh, there's an yeah. I in bishop. So we changed the original I for an E, which which confused oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, and if you repeated a number, so if it was 116 pounds a ton, it would be E for one, yeah. X for a duplication of the one, yeah. EX, and then... So, you know, 
It's about 1978 when we changed from shillings a quarter yeah. to pounds a ton. Um, yeah, I only ever knew pounds a yeah, ton, yeah. thankfully. Um, well, it really went out in 78, probably ch- was changing beforehand. Mm. Um, but certainly um, when I started, 100 shillings a quarter was pretty reasonable barley, and a quarter was 400 weight, two sacks. And each sack of barley weighed 16 stone. That's what a man could carry, they thought, or what the capacity of a, a normal coom sack was. So um, a coom of wheat was actually 18 stone rather than 16. Right. And a coom of oats was 12. Mm-hmm. All very complicated nowadays compared with just tons. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But barley was traded, and it, as malting barley was the gentleman's trade, it was a bit like paying guineas for something. We dealt in shillings a quarter, so uh, feed barley was round about 72 shillings a quarter, 18 pounds a ton, mm-hmm. and malting barley probably um, 100 shillings a quarter or a bit better for the very best, mm. which would be £25 a tonne delivered maltings. And when you delivered to maltings in those days, he had a little metal spike thing, cone, hollow thing, which he took a sample out of every single sack you delivered. Mm-hmm. And he would send back a couple of sacks he didn't really like. So when the lorry came back to base, you had to take these two sacks off that had been refused at the maltings, or five sacks refused at the maltings, which complicated issues quite a lot yeah because you end up with two sacks then going to hawk back to the farm technically yeah 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 or we had a little stock of these blessed things which we'd blend off into something else we were selling gosh dicky bird was <laughs> the very, expert at blending oh he was an expert at blending. i can see him now with four or five black bowls on a windowsill and he'd had samples from each silo we'd got in the plant and he put two spoonfuls of that and a spoonful of that and two of that and add up to a blend so you'd have silo one would go at twice the rate of silo two so you've got the blend I've spent a lifetime as a bulker, as a blender. I, you know, we've invested in storage. and it, it, We do exactly what I was taught to do in the 70s. It's not, you know, if I can meet a 1.65 nitrogen spec on the barleys I'm delivering, yeah. and it happens to have some 1.4 and some 1.75 in it, for the purist, that's not ideal. But let's face it, uh, one field has a variance in nitrogen between yeah. 1.1 and 2.2. So it's nothing other than being exacting on the product that you're yeah. delivering. I mean, you, people don't always realise, particularly in... Um, fields which are a bit shaded by hedgerow trees the headland will be very often a higher nitrogen than than Hmm. the bulk of the field absolutely and you've got to allow for that and of course when you had sacks that stood out yeah because you had a a sack from the, the headland it wasn't the same quality as a sack from the bulk of the field no absolutely and then and, and you have to, I mean, even now, people know where they tip their headlands, don't they? And they're, yeah. they're out. people are conscious of that. And it is a quality issue that technically the headlands is not up to spec. No. End of story. That, and you can't dress it up or make it any better. It's 2% nitrogen or yeah. it's not fit or something. So in reality, anything you sell is a blend. Hmm. And I know the maltster would like to think that everything <laughs> was an even quality. In reality, we know it isn't. Yeah, well, you simply can't have one field with identical soil type from top to bottom, and it's just microclimate issues. Yeah, whether there's trees, whether there's not, it's impossible, you're right, unless it's in a greenhouse, and that that just isn't the case, is it? No, no. a lot of the skills that Marley traders is making sure that it's sampled evenly. Well, it's it's now a mathematical thing, isn't it? People will put nitrogens together on the basis of an average of the nitrogens. When I trained, David Brown at Dalgetty Rackheath was very 
very into how the barleys looked. Yeah. And um, so I used to help them put the bag together. So I learnt the, the trick of, so when you, in the olden days, you'd sell stuff on a sample, wouldn't you? Yeah. And if grain delivered didn't look like the sample, it would get rejected on the basis of the look. It wouldn't match yeah. the sample. So if you sent a sample, or if you took some samples to market and you wanted to sell more tonnes and passive possibly what you got bought yeah you'd put together a your right. own samples your blends or bulks yeah and you had to then find samples to match it so yeah. you you really had to look at the barley yes you did which yeah. was a fantastic and discipline of course, for the me. weapon we all carried in our pockets at that time which we'd never hear of nowadays was a set of barley cutters i have a pair of those i assume you have some somewhere I yes, I've got a pair. Yes, but yeah. I've lent them to people because they hadn't seen such things before. Well, you've got to get them back. They're rare. Yeah, yep. and uh, you've never looked. No malts to look at a sample without putting them in a cutters and cutting them through. And if they were nice and white and mealy, mm-hmm. that was all right. But if they showed that sort of grey, steely look. Mm. That wasn't steely. up to standard. No. And well, it's not an expression you hear nowadays, but we, we couldn't sell barleys that were steely. No, absolutely. For what it's worth, my barley cutters came from a company called R.W. Doing & Co., who were molsters in Fakenham. Yeah. They closed in 68. They walked out the door, sat there. Dorothy Doing was the, the lady, the last, I think the last buyer. Um, and yeah, it was... Um, it's her barley. I went to look around the maltings in 1981 or two before anything had happened to it, and it's like they'd walked out a decade or so earlier. Yeah. And there were these barley cutters, and that Dorothy Doing was in a in a home, and um, I picked them up, and I said, you know, I'm going to go and ask if I can have these off this lady, and she said, yeah, I'm, no one else is going to want them, and they're, they're yeah. my most prized possession. Yeah. I mean, if only for nostalgia, because you, you don't use them. There's no, no, point. no, you don't use them nowadays, and of course. If you didn't have your cutters with you, you bit them with your front teeth mm. and looked at the salt grain. And you never bought any barley on the farm without biting it yep. to see what kernel was like. Mm. So you were much more aware of visual quality of what you were actually and You buying. can tell, can't you? I mean, yeah. you can. You look at a barley. I famously, as it was with Kosh um, mm. a few years ago at Holcomb, and famously we went into a field and, and there was lots of teasing going on about being old and all the rest of it. And we stood in this field and we were looking to achieve a certain nitrogen for the bulk yeah. for the Adams contract. And this is a true story. And he like, oh, God, then what's the nitrogen of this and Andrew? And I looked at the physical sample that came out of the, you know, I rubbed some out of my hand and I looked at it and I said... 1.73 and that's really because there was there was Fergus from Adnams there was yeah. Paul Hoverson there was several people yeah. that James Beamish there were several people all around and I called it 1.73 nitrogen and they all laughed and ha 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 and the spec was 1.65 it says that ain't going to make it into the bulk anyway so we, we we made a note of the trailer we went back to the site and thankfully you know heaven sent moment of all times it was 1.73 and it was, I'll never do it again. I totally accept that. But it was a fantastic moment for an old coach <laughs> yes. and this young buck giving him a hard time. Yeah. It was just like, yeah, who needs a machine when you've got, yeah. you know, someone who can do it by eye? And but it was, it was. If you were doing it every day, you. Yeah. You would be pretty accurate within a, sp- I a could visual do, assessment. You can yeah. put your hand in a sample of grain and say, mm, that's a that's bit damp. wet or that's yeah, incredibly yeah. dry. It's like a, a woodwork yeah. with his wood. He, you know, yeah. you know, don't you? The, the, yeah, you the... immediately know that it was damp. Mind you, it was a pretty, you, if you knew the farm, it was a pretty good call. You'd know it was damp in any case. <laughs> I know, there's clues you don't talk about, isn't it? It's a bit like <laughs> yes. being... A... I mean... but, but, the, but that dynamic has gone with, the, with, the, with testing, with nitrogen being God and, and screenings yeah. and everything. People don't need to do that. They can just go, right, right. these are the figures, forget get the rest of it jeremy i think with that we're going to continue our conversation in a minute jeremy thank you very much for your for your time on that thank you very much thanks for listening make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on twitter we are at dewing grain 
Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.